As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to evolve, our leaders keep coming back to one thing, a vaccine. It's widely accepted that without a vaccine, life won't really be going back to normal. But as it turns out, not everyone is on board. Over the last several years, an anti-vaccine movement has been gaining steam in the United States with more and more parents and non-parents deciding that skipping vaccines for themselves and their children is the way to go. And that's why this week we wanted to bring you an episode from our archives that dives into the science and history behind vaccines and how to push back against the anti-vaccine movement. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in 2017 amidst a large measles outbreak. You'll hear references to that time and situation throughout the interview, but I think you'll find our conversation as relevant as ever. Hi, I'm Lizzie Gidey-Ehrlich, and this is the Scholar Strategy Network's No Jargon. Each week, we discuss an American policy problem with one of the nation's top researchers without jargon. In this episode, I spoke to Dr. Matthew Woodruff, who's a former postdoctoral research fellow at the Vaccine Research Center and a current researcher in the Division of Rheumatology at Emory University. Here's our conversation. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So this summer, there was a pretty large measles outbreak in Minnesota, something we have not seen in quite a while in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening there? Yeah, it was um, it was really unfortunate, actually. There's a community in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. It's a, a Somalian immigrant community. And that community, unfortunately, recently has been the target of a pretty enormous anti-vaccine campaign over the last 10 years or so. And in those 10 years, that community has gone from one of the most highly vaccinated populations in the state to one of the most uh, low vaccine populations or low vaccine recipient populations in the state, down to uh, some estimates put it at about 42% in the two-year-old population. And the result of that, unfortunately, has been a, a really severe measles outbreak, which is not yet under control. It's cost probably upwards of $5 million at this point, and really has no signs of stopping anytime soon. So you, you say that they were the target of an anti-vaccination campaign. Who is behind that? So basically, the anti-vaccine movement has existed for as long as we've had public health campaigns, right? So the first vaccine campaigns came all the way back uh, to smallpox in England. Um, and there's a real resistance in any population that doesn't understand how vaccines work to mandate something that's being done to your body, especially to your children's bodies. So rather than, I think, pointing at individuals, which definitely do incite this, and I think the most recent version of this is a researcher uh, from the UK or a former physician from the UK who had sort of tentatively linked the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, to autism. And he's become some, uh, somewhat of a champion uh, to the anti-vaccine movement. But that movement uh, has steam with or without him. And unfortunately, it was indicated to the Somalian community that there was an increased risk of autism within the community somewhere around the 2006 to 2008 years. Um, the response of the anti-vaccine community was to see that group as a potential target. Uh, they hit them with a lot of anti-vaccine rhetoric. They held town halls. Basically, they just got in the ear of Somalian immigrant leaders and told them that these vaccines were giving their children autism, which 
something obviously that most parents are concerned about uh, and in this case it worked let's talk some about you know the, the impact that we know can occur when people are not getting vaccinated how does that work basically vaccines are often very effective and they have different what we call efficacy rates so this is the rate at which a vaccinated person is likely to become resistant to a specific disease so for example the mumps vaccine or the mumps portion of the mmr vaccine gives somewhere around about an 88 percent protection rate so 88 percent of people healthy people with normal immune systems that get the vaccine will then become resistant to the mumps infection uh, mumps is a virus by the way so the problem with that is that even at an 88 percent protection rate uh, that still leaves 12 percent of healthy individuals that will not respond appropriately to the mumps vaccine and when i say not appropriately it just means that everyone has a very highly divergent immune system right we're all walking around with very diverse immune function and that's really important from a human population stance so that any one disease can't come through and wipe out all of us right so our immune systems are diverse enough to prevent us from all going down at the same time the problem with that is that sometimes you won't respond to something that i will and this is a real challenge when it comes to creating a vaccine it's never going to protect everyone or it often won't protect everyone so the question from a public policy perspective is how do you get everyone protected if no vaccine that you ever create is capable of doing or covering that number of people and the way that this works is something called herd immunity and herd immunity is this idea that you don't actually have to protect everyone or everyone doesn't have to be resistant to the virus you just have to protect enough people so that the people that are susceptible to the virus are never going to run into somebody that has an active mumps infection. And so now knowing what herd immunity is, can you tell us what exactly is a vaccine and how does it work? Yeah, a vaccine is basically just a version of whatever pathogen it is that you're trying to protect against. And there are a number of different kinds of vaccines. Some are much more complicated than others. Uh, surprisingly, the simplest ones that we have uh, tends to be the ones that work the best. So the ones that people know the most about, uh, smallpox, polio, for example, these are vaccines where you basically just take the bug, take the virus, and you uh, do something called attenuation. You basically make that virus less capable of infecting a normal human. And what that does is if you inject that into a person, you see a modified version of the virus except that that virus is not able to actively cause an infection, right? So your immune system sort of gets trained to see the virus so that when the virus really does come around and it is infectious, your immune system has sort of been given a head start, right? You've already built up an antibody response. And so if someone with polio comes into contact with you, you see the live virus, your immune system can clear it before that polio bug actually can cause an active infection. Thanks. I think that those were really useful explainers about the functions of actual vaccines. Can we talk about history a little bit more? We already mentioned sort of the deep and long history of people being skeptical of vaccines in the United States, but what is the actual history of vaccinations, how that science was developed? Yeah, I, I wish that I could say that it was really intelligently done, but really a lot of it comes back to trial and error. So smallpox was a massive problem in Europe, uh, 
specifically and in the Americas as well, uh, pretty much decimated the native population here. Um, but smallpox was really, really ugly. I mean, it had a mortality rate upwards of 30% in some cases, and it would sweep through cities and populations and really just tear them apart. And so there was always a lot of push to figure out how to go about uh, vaccinating against smallpox. So uh, the story that most people are most familiar with and the story that generally gets told as far as the generation of vaccines goes back to an English physician. His name was Edward Jenner. And so this is in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he was not the first person to recognize any of the things that I'm about to tell you, but he is widely credited with sort of popularizing the idea. Basically what had been observed is that milkmaids that would work uh, in dairy farms would get a disease pretty early on in childhood that looked a lot like smallpox, but it wasn't exactly smallpox. It didn't carry with it the mortality and it was a lot less severe. And so they called this cowpox. This was something that they got routinely. And it was also observed that these same milkmaids, if they had cowpox previously, they did not eventually contract smallpox in the same way that the rest of the population did. And so this led people to start to wonder whether this initial cowpox infection was protecting them from a subsequent smallpox infection. So sort of the famous experiment that Edward Jenner did was he took a needle and some thread and he went to one of these milkmaids and he sort of threaded the needle through one of those pustules again. But this is a cowpox pustule, right? This is not a smallpox pustule. So he'd thread the needle through this pustule and then he would basically go to an, a, what we call a naive patient. So this is somebody that's never uh, seen smallpox or cowpox before. And he would put the needle through that person's arm. Uh, it's likely that this person was the son of one of the farm workers that he had on hand. Uh, so sometimes people will tell you that he did it to his own son. And that would be pretty courageous. But he definitely did not do that. Um, so he basically inoculated this young boy with this cowpox pustule and they had a reaction on their arm and then he did something that you definitely cannot do in human immunology anymore or should never have done it to begin with he basically tried to infect this boy with smallpox and lo and behold he was not susceptible to smallpox anymore and so this was sort of the the beginning of this idea of vaccination to prevent the spread of smallpox. And this was popularized uh, subsequently, and it found its way into legislation. And you do have to understand that the early history of smallpox in London, for example, was so brutal. I mean, this was such a burden on the population that the government had a real interest in making sure that these vaccination programs got off the ground quickly if they worked. And so there was a whole lot of sort of authoritarian push to get people vaccinated. And people now, and certainly people then, had very little understanding of how these vaccines worked, what they were. Um, you know, all of the things that you hear now that vaccines aren't natural, uh, all of those things have been with vaccine campaigns since the very beginning. And it, to be honest with you, was a pretty rational response. If you've got a government entity that's giving you some sort of disease in your arm. Sometimes people would contract smallpox anyway. Sometimes people would contract smallpox 
while getting the vaccine. So it seemed like they were getting smallpox from the vaccine. And the government just really wasn't interested in listening to the concerns of the people, right? So it's really not so surprising that there was a huge backlash against these vaccination campaigns. And it really hasn't stopped. And so what happens when that sort of, as, as you've shown, very logical skepticism in its way does sort of take root in communities and herd immunity is compromised? Basically, what you end up doing is you put a whole lot of people at risk. Uh, and it's not necessarily the people that make the decision not to get vaccinated, right? So you see a huge spike in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and people that decide not to be vaccinated. And a very sort of logical, but also a bit of a cold response is to say, well, you know, they've made their bed. You know, they, they've chosen not to be vaccinated. Uh, and so let them get the measles and they'll learn. And the next generation hopefully will be vaccinated. And, you know, there are a lot of people that make that argument. The problem with that argument is that it's not just the people that don't get the vaccine that end up getting hit by this stuff. I told you before that in the case of the mumps vaccine, only 88% or so of the people that actually got the MMR vaccine are going to be protected. So there's going to be 12% of otherwise healthy people surrounding that unvaccinated population that are totally susceptible to mumps, right? And that is not their own decision not to be vaccinated. They have been vaccinated, but they're still at risk because that vaccine didn't work for them. And on top of those people, people that might die to mumps, or a measles infection are people like infants who can't receive vaccines because their immune systems haven't developed yet, uh, cancer patients who have had their immune systems ablated because it was an immune cancer and so you had to severely immunosuppress them in order to fight off the disease, HIV AIDS patients who have a severely compromised or suppressed immune system. All of these people, through no fault of their own, cannot receive or will not respond well to these vaccines. So by creating a population, a local population, where a group of people decides not to be vaccinated, the measles or mumps or rubella or whatever it happens to be breaks out in the unvaccinated population, but it quickly spreads to all of these at-risk individuals. And so we've, we've learned from a lot of public health initiatives that it's very difficult to get people to do preemptive things that are good for their health. How does that affect vaccines and campaigns for vaccines? Yeah, you're right. It is. It's hard to, it's hard to get people to sign on to something that they don't understand and has sort of only theoretical benefit in their minds, right? The problem with a, a good vaccine that works is that if you are protected, you won't ever know that you were protected. If you were vaccinated with MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, and you meet up with somebody on a plane that has measles, and you don't know they have measles, but that measles was coming your way, right? The virus was coming your way. If you were successfully vaccinated, you just won't get the measles. You'll never know that that vaccine worked, right? And so this is a problem uh, within the population, just trying to get people to understand that they are being actively protected by these vaccines, even if it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of measles and mumps around. You know, keeping people vaccinated is critical for maintaining the fact that there's no measles or mumps around. It just hasn't gone away. We also don't do a great job of really tracking people, right? So uh, I think it's important to mention that the United States Supreme Court has over and over again uh, granted the government the right to vaccinate any population it deems necessary in 
pursuit of public health. Right? So there isn't really an argument that the government cannot take steps to make sure that everyone is vaccinated. And some states even have gone the extra step. There's three states that do not allow any exemptions. This issue of vaccine exemptions is really where a lot of the problems arise now in the United States. And a vaccine exemption basically says, and this is state dependent, so Georgia is going to be different from Tennessee, which is going to be different from Massachusetts. If you petition the state and you say, I have a child, and for X reason, it might be a religious reason, it might be a personal belief reason, there's sort of a, a whole array of different rules that are used across the country. But if you petition the state and you say, I have a child, and for this reason, I don't think that that child should be vaccinated, uh, the state can grant that exemption or deny it as they see fit. And that really is all controlled uh, as you sort of get children into public school, right? So as children are arriving in public and private schools, you're checking their vaccine records, right? And depending on the state, depending on whether you petition for an exemption, the school will look at your child's record and say, you know, either, well, it looks like you haven't been vaccinated and you can't come here until you have, or uh, you have, come on in, right? So those are sort of your two options. Um, the problem is that we don't really have a good way of tracking children up until that point. You have, in the case in Minnesota, you have all of these children at daycare centers, right? And so these daycare centers are prior to public school enrollment. You have daycare centers that are prior, prior obviously, to private school enrollment as well. And so you have two-year-olds that are walking around that are not vaccinated against measles. And you have two-year-olds at a vaccine rate of about 33% in some cases. Basically, you have some of these local populations where the children in these communities are vaccinated at such low rates that, of course, there's going to be some sort of outbreak, but you're never going to see that that population wasn't vaccinated until they're probably five or six years old and entering public school. It's a good question <laughs> as far as, you know, how do we get people invested in vaccination? Um, education is certainly one part of it, but I think that there's always also a really important policy piece of this is that individual states need to find ways of tracking kids prior to public and private schools, or else there's really no way to get a handle on when these susceptible populations are emerging. So knowing what we know about how difficult it can be to track and then gather useful sort of data about these populations that are maybe having lower vaccination rates, what do we know at this stage about those communities that have come out against vaccines? Are there shared characteristics there that could be addressed through education? Well, it tends to, in my experience, and I certainly can't speak to the entire anti-vaccine community, um, it tends to be people that are either unfamiliar with healthcare, especially healthcare as it works in this country. They tend to not know all that much about how health works generally. Uh, they tend not to see all that many physicians as they're growing up, and they tend to be really susceptible to misinformation campaigns. So that fits the Somali community in Minneapolis, St. Paul pretty well. Um, I'm certain in those cases that education campaigns would work well, because basically that's what's happening, right? So these communities don't have a good working understanding of how vaccines work, why they're important, and so there's a vacuum. 
And I'd like to tell you that the physicians that are treating these communities are doing a great job at vaccine outreach and explaining all of these things. But in my experience, um, there are holes in that. And some physicians will uh, just sort of push the vaccine and not explain it. Um, and as a result, people will just sort of become distrustful. You know, people really understand why they are bringing their child kicking and screaming into the doctor's office to get multiple shots over and over again as they're growing up. That's a scary thing for people. And so if you're already scared and somebody comes in and starts explaining to you that vaccines really aren't that great, um, that they're actually causing your autism and they sort of build on your existing fear, what they're doing is they're running a really effective campaign, right? So we could be filling that hole and we're not filling that hole at all. We're doing a terrible job of making sure that these communities are well-educated and invested in their own community's health because they don't want their susceptible members of their community exposed to measles, mumps, rubella either, right? They also have elderly people in, in their communities that they would like to protect. So we definitely need to do some outreach there. The other group that I've seen that can be a bit of a problem, um, and this is a harder problem actually to solve, are people that feel like they know more than their physicians. So that community has done some real damage uh, as far as uh, public trust in vaccination. And the issue there is that not only are they uneducated, but they're resistant to education, right? They'll tell you that because you're part of the establishment, because you're a researcher, because you've had contact with pharmaceuticals, that you can't possibly have the best interest of the general population in mind. And it's very, very difficult to reach the top end of that movement, right? Because a lot of that is top down. It's a couple loud voices telling a lot of people that again, are very susceptible to education about vaccines, that vaccines are nasty and that they're doing harmful things to their children. And so to be honest with you, short of uh, policy mandates and making sure that government institutions are looking out for the well-being of its citizens. I'm not sure that education campaigns will work as well on that community. It strikes me as very interesting, at least in what I've observed, that anti-vaccination movements don't seem to be ideologically based. Um, you know, that there's this is something that's actually rather bipartisan uh, and seems to stem from sort of distrust in institutions more than, a, you know, a particular political ideology. So, you know, that's interesting to have that information as well. And your anecdotes seem to back that up some. This is not a movement on the right or the left. Um, it can be, you know, pernicious and really kind of pop up anywhere. Is there a pro-vaccination movement at all to counter it? Um, not one that's loud enough, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> So I, I'm, I'll admit I'm not a public policy person. Uh, this is sort of early days in my, my push into policy. Most of my experience has been in bench research and it continues to be in bench research. Uh, and I can tell you that the people that I've met that are the most invested in actual vaccine design implementation, um, and there are other people, you know, on the pharmaceutical side that are interested in rolling these things together into products and getting them out. And there are people on the government side that are interested in pulling those products and making sure that people are well covered. But the people that I know that are the most invested in the basic science and understand the most about how vaccines work and why they're important, they have a tendency to keep to themselves. Uh, they have a tendency not to be all that loud. There are some definite 
voices out there, but they tend to be popular science voices, right? They tend to be the Bill Nye's of the world. And Bill Nye is great for science outreach, but he doesn't know a lot about vaccines, right? And even the physicians, so there are a lot of popular physicians that find their voices on, you know, different news programs and all of these things. They all know that vaccines are important, uh, but I think it really will take some people that are really well-versed in how these things work and can explain it to people. I think it will take that, which I don't know exists right now, in order to make people feel really comfortable that the people that are designing these things are actually designing them with people's best interests in mind. And so you say that you're not a policy person, but you are one of the people who is actually designing these vaccines and, and figuring out how to get them to work even better. Um, how has this current political climate and sort of the anti-vaccine movement coming from various places impacted your personal work? Well, I'm, I'm glad to say that the anti-vaccine movement uh, hasn't really impacted the work so much. Uh, the science really kind of has to be insulated from the public view. I can tell you, though, that there is a lot of concern over funding in general. So anytime an administration comes in that makes it clear that they're pretty anti-science, they're not going to listen to their scientific community, and they see dollar signs in places that they feel like, you know, that's just not useful, uh, there is a tendency to slash those budgets. And fortunately, we have not seen that yet with this administration. But, you know, I, I can tell you that there's certainly a lot of concern. I wish I could say that the, the vaccine group was sort of winning the conversation right now. And we are winning in a sense that most people are vaccinated in this country. Most people are not susceptible to things like measles, mumps, rubella. Uh, most people are living in populations that are relatively well protected, but that's because of policy. That's not because we're winning the very vocal oral debate that's happening across the country. And I would say that we're pretty profoundly losing that conversation, and that is showing itself in situations like this Minneapolis outbreak. Well, thank you so much for the information. Oh, thank you. Peter, thank you for coming on No Jargon. 
Uh, thank you for having me. So you study community health centers and you've been doing work around what their role is in this current crisis, but taking it back a little bit to start, can you tell me exactly what a community health center is? Uh, the community health center is actually a formal health center program of the Department of Health and Human Services. So it, it, it is a program that was federally initiated and federally supported at the beginning, way back in the 1960s, uh, when we were really going through the civil rights era and you know, there was a lot of focus around what it meant for well-being and welfare. Um, and one of the great things about the community health center model is it it's an, actually an, an adaptation of the healthcare delivery model that was found in South Africa by Dr. Jack Geiger, um, which is, uh, of course, the health center pioneer, uh, the health justice pioneer, and for which the Geiger Gibson program is named after at George Washington University. And what he found was, yes, clinics are supposed to provide medical care. Health centers should be providing primary care. But at the same time, this model recognizes that there are a lot of underlying issues that are spurring poor health or, or uh, behaviors that may undermine uh, medical care uh, so that you're always having to deal with obesity issues, malnourishment, all, the, all sides of the healthcare equation. And one of the great things about the health center model is that it is a program that requires a lot of regulation and oversight. One of the biggest ones is that it has to be also managed by a patient majority board, meaning that the patients make up the majority of the governing model of health centers, and they really make sure that the community needs are being met. And it's something that a lot of healthcare organizations cannot do. I mean, can you imagine that your main stakeholders are the communities themselves who are more focused on community well-being than on stock or profiteering? Um, so it, it is an, a, an amazing model that's really grown quite a bit since the 1960s. Yeah, I really dig that, like, egalitarian setup. That's really cool. But to kind of paint me a picture, let's say I'm walking into a community health center. What do I see? What does it look like in there? Well, I think one of the biggest myths about community health centers is because it's in really resource-poor communities, namely, or in other words, low-income inner city or rural communities, they look like any other physician's office. It is not in any way a poor people's clinic, nor does it look like one. If you go to Harlem, you will find a, an amazing health center. Um, when you go in, it's state-of-the-art equipment, all the physicians, you know, it just looks like a really well-run organization. Now, one of the things about health centers also is that once you go in, they will do a screening of not only your health care issues, but also, in many cases, what we call social determinant screening, meaning are there other things that are impacting your health and well-being? Is it about housing issues? Are you feeling you can't afford food, um, rent? And they will try to pull all the other resources together because the thing about community health centers, again, remember the key word here is community. So they are very much tied in with other community-based organizations, and they really try to really impact community health and well-being. And they will try to get you, as that patient, if you have a food issue, get you hooked up to a food bank or provide some sort of, you know, what used to be in the 1960s food vouchers. Um, I mean, one of the great anecdotes that Jack Heiger had was 
you know, he was giving out food vouchers. And these payers would say, you know, why are you giving out food vouchers? Why are we paying for that? And, you know, he sh uh, nonchalantly just said, I believe the best prescription for hunger is food. So, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of just that kind of common sense approach to really thinking about serving the person as a whole, then the family, then looking at the community, and then looking beyond where else they can go to really meet the unmet needs. Uh, and so, you know, this is sort of the, the culture of a community health center. And when you go in, and you will, you will get that sense because you, you'll meet all different types of workers there, whether it's community health workers, clinical social workers. So the, it is really a one-stop shop for getting the services, both the health and social service that you need. Yeah, so we have this um, model of care which really like centers the patient. So I'm curious about who these patients are and you know, how many Americans do you think are, are served by these community health centers? Um, well, as of 2018, which is the, the latest count of uh, health center patients is uh, uh, over 28 million. Um, I think the, the projection for this year is about 29 million. And nine out of 10 health center patients have incomes less than 200% of the poverty level. So, I mean, they are, they have difficulties in, in getting health insurance uh, if they're not on Medicaid. Um, if they're on Medicaid, that's fantastic, but many of them will lack transportation to get to the clinics um, or to get to a different kind of referral mechanisms, whether it's a specialist, mental health, substance abuse, even though a lot of those services are now being brought in-house into health centers. Um, a lot of them are sort of low-wage workers, uh, hospitality industry. A lot of them are uh, migrant workers. A lot of them are migrant, uh, I'm sorry, homeless populations. And some of them are even veterans. Uh, remember that there was an overrun of the, uh, the VA system uh, where there was a backlog of people who simply could not get the care that they needed through the VA. So, you know, health centers also stepped up to help manage that population as well. So the way that the health centers look and when you go into one, uh, I, I know I sort of describe them as being similar to what other private physician offices might be. But when you go into one, I mean, each one is very different. Each one serves a very different clientele. Uh, obviously, there's different language, different culture uh, that uh, the patients bring in in that community. But for the most part, you know that the population that they had to go after. Um, and uh, the thing about health centers also is that they are federally mandated to be in these federally designated medically underserved communities where there is uh, high infant mortality rates, poor health, high poverty and where the risk of uh, death and even uh, disability or even chronic conditions are relatively higher than the general public. Yeah, so it sounds to me like they cover a, a really specific and important niche like within America's healthcare system. So what has the impact of these centers, what has that been on the actual health and well-being of Americans? Well, I mean, again, you know, you have to think of these medically underserved areas where these health conditions were not being previously addressed. You know, again, we're thinking about places with high mortality rates, high obesity, high, um, where kids don't normally or would be able to easily access uh, immunizations uh, or vaccine services. Um, so as soon as you get in there, you know, it could be said, you know, that if you build it, they will come. And I think, you know, that's sort of been the mantra and it doesn't 
fail here either. Um, that health centers, you know, they do a lot of community health needs assessments, understand where the highest needs are, where the patients would best be able to access health center services, and they would build it. They would build out from there um, and identify other areas as they do these community health needs assessments every three years. Um, and, and really go after trying to build up the kind of services that each unique neighborhood would require, whether it's mental health services, dental health services, vision care. And for them, they, they really do think about how to serve the population at the highest level possible. So let's talk about the current pandemic. What has the role been of these community health centers in fighting this outbreak? Like what kind of services have they been providing and have they been successful given their unique model and unique goals? I think just to tie in the, the prior question, um, you know, one of the things about health centers also is that they're in these high needs areas where it is also uh, where a lot of social inequity occur, where a lot of communities of color are. And so you've heard a lot of stories about COVID-19 cases being much more disproportionately uh, present in communities of color. And that's where health centers are. And so they help to mitigate the inequity or health disparities, as we would say. And for them, they're very much on the front lines of defense. Um, I mean, obviously, they're not as crazily overwhelmed as hospitals and emergency departments. But they are, again, in those communities where there may not be another source of care for, for miles or, be a, or where patients can easily access other types of even hospitals in their community. Um, we've also heard stories of rural hospitals falling apart or closing down because of the financial issues. And what happens in those communities? Well, hopefully there's a community health center there, and some of them will recruit some of those providers as well. But again, they become sometimes in, in those areas the community uh, providers of, of last resort. Uh, I mean, I always hate to use that term um, because the way that health centers are, even though people might think of them as poor people's clinics, their performance record is extremely high. They exceed a lot of the national benchmarks when you compare them against other private physicians, uh, against even systems of care like HMOs and Medicaid managed care. Um, so they do provide a quality of care that, it, that often exceeds those benchmarks. And we know that from other studies that they're also very cost effective. But just to get back to the, the, the outbreak, they do, again, help not only with simply providing ongoing care for those communities, but also we still remain on, as part of the frontline defense against COVID-19. Yeah, so on the other hand, you know, in addition to obviously being really challenging on patients, COVID-19 has been a threat to a lot of healthcare providers, um, a strain on resources and on staff, so what threats does uh, the COVID-19 pandemic pose to these community health centers? Well, as I mentioned, health centers are, are very much on the, uh, the front line defense. And we know from the latest HRSA survey that was conducted on April 10th that, that COVID-19 is in those communities. The latest numbers show that about 57,000 of their patients have been tested for COVID-19, of whom 9,300 have tested positive. And we also know about 1,400. That was April 23rd, 2020. So this podcast 
is over a year old, those statistics are already outdated. Let's continue to listen. Health center staff have also tested positive. So there is a direct adverse um, impact on, on health centers directly. The other piece being that just like every other business or operations, that they've had fewer patients coming in, and, and rightfully so. So a lot of health centers have had to switch their delivery to do things uh, through telehealth or through uh, telephonic consultations. But the problem for that also is that their operational revenues uh, have also declined precipitously. And now if you can only imagine health centers, again, being in areas where no other provider really wants to go in because they know there is no money to be made in serving in those uh, poor communities. Um, they rely a lot on Medicaid funding. Um, they rely a lot on federal funding as well. Um, and they've always had cash flow that's often been less than 30 days or even 20 days. So for them, some of the negative aspects has been that they've had to furlough a lot of their staff. Uh, they've had to close some of their sites um, so that they can consolidate some of the remaining staff to be as optimally placed in terms of impacting their communities uh, and their service area. But, but at the same time, one of their biggest worries is you know, how to think in the future of how do they recoup, how do they rebuild, not only in terms of trying to earn back business that's almost impossible to, um, to be profitable um, in these kind of communities, but also because they're also in communities that are, may not be attractive to a lot of other providers, but in terms of recruitment and retention of, again, building up that workforce, again, uh, to come into these communities. And I want to get into that a little bit because you've written about this for um, the Scholar Strategy Network, a policy idea for our Big Ideas Project, which is a project we are currently launching to support policymakers and, and research and foreign policy to address COVID-19. And your policy idea, um, can well, share with me what your proposal is about and what the model you've created is for supporting these centers. Well, I think the, the primary one is being able to provide greater funding for health centers. You know, the Affordable Care Act created the Community Health Center Fund, knowing that they were critical for the national effort to expand coverage to the uninsured. And of course, when you have an insurance card, they need somewhere to go. So health centers was that natural model, because most of the uninsured tend to be in places where they don't have really good access to care. And health centers are are in those communities. And, uh, you know, the, there was $5 billion uh, that was set aside for them. And what was supposed to happen was the, the funding was meant to keep spurring the growth because we know that there are other gaps going on. There are other policies that if even now that are offsetting any gains in access. So if you even think about some of the family planning uh, regulations that are quickly uh, wiping out a lot of the family planning clinics, you know, health centers are, tr are trying to fill in some of that void. And, and so how do you constantly go after a population and expand your access as you're not only thinking about places that were, that you had long planned to um, target, but now you have to also try to find, to fill the gaps or the holes that other providers are now leaving behind as they slowly deteriorate. 
So uh, the funding was the most critical component. And then the other piece being that as telehealth becomes much more sort of the main, or main line uh, of providing care, you know, you want to see uh, a greater financial equity or reimbursement for those kind of consultation services as well for health centers to help continue to support some of the operations that health centers are trying to maintain over this critical period. So especially considering that these community health centers serve, you know, underserved populations, including a lot of communities of color that have been, as many of our listeners know from our episode a couple weeks ago, suffering disproportionately during this crisis, what would additional funding help these health centers do? No, absolutely. They would help mitigate and narrow that uh, disparity, those gaps. I think it's just sad to hear any health center that would have to close their sites because you know then that the, the battle against health disparities is it suffers the most. And the other piece being that we know, at least for a lot of the populations that they serve, that they are at higher risk for chronic health conditions, for costly health conditions. That you know, if health centers were not there, they would literally have to go to either emergency care room because they haven't been able to manage their care or to uh, practices that may not be as cost efficient as health centers. Peter, thank you so much for coming on No Jargon. Thank you for having me again. And thank you for listening. For more on Peter Shin's work, check out our show notes at scholars.org slash no jargon. No Jargon is the podcast of the Scholar Strategy Network, a nationwide organization that connects journalists, policymakers, and civic leaders with America's top researchers to improve policy and strengthen democracy. The producer of our show is Dominic Derma, and our sound engineer is J.M. Baez. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You can give us feedback on Twitter at NoJargonPodcast or at our email address, NoJargon at scholars.org. biggest hotspots, the governor there is actively up. Let's go to NBC's Gary Grumbach in Austin, Texas. So Gary, what are officials telling you about this? Hey there, Alex. Yeah, I had a conversation with the mayor of Austin here, Steve Adler, earlier this morning, and he painted a very bleak picture for what hospitals in this area look like right now. He said he visited an ICU yesterday. I can't tell you, Alex, how many times he used the word to describe what he saw. There's about 2.3 million people that live in the greater Austin area, and there are currently nine ICU beds available. So it's a real problem for hospitals. They're starting to put in some of their surge plans, which include moving some patients to the hallways of these hospitals just to add more people to the hospital. But they're not adding more staff to the hospital. That's becoming a real big issue as well, because when there were staffing issues last year, this time last year, the state was able to bring in reinforcements. Today, the state says they don't have those reinforcements. They can't bring anybody in. And the hospitals are very much on their own when it comes to staffing and all of the virus that is coming in. There's also the issue of the governor's executive order that came down this week, essentially. Against mandates, saying that local officials cannot put in place mandates on vaccines or mandates on masks. 
This has local officials very worried about how they're able to manage their own territories and their own areas. And I want to have you listen to Steve Adler, he's the mayor of Austin here, about some of the mixed messaging that's coming from different areas of the government. What is frustrating for me right now is in order to get a community to move, they need to be hearing one message. They need to be hearing one message from their political leaders, from their health leaders, from their doctors, from their businesses, from their faith communities. They need to be hearing one message. And what is happening that is wrong right now in our country is that people are hearing mixed messages and divided messages. And there are too many people that are confused about what it is they should be doing to keep them, their families, and everybody else safe. And the answer is still very simple get vaccinated and wear masks. So there is some good news. There's 500,000 people getting vaccinated every single day in the United States, about 15,000 people this week in Travis County alone. So those uh, vaccination numbers are increasing. 